0: Welcome, everyone. So are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. Well, that's true. But all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of... And coming up, Martin Heidegger and his seminal work being and time.
1: Uh, so yeah, so I'm finally I'm finally out of isolation and I'm looking at the run sheet today and obviously we have a really nice easy episode to start off with and if I look at the first note I have, it turns out Heidegger, uh, the focus of today's episode, Heidegger was a Nazi or at the very least he was a member of the Nazi party early on, I think in the early 1930s or something. I'll just let that sit there for a second because, you know, like in our modern world where every third person is accused of being a Nazi or a world where people argue about the moral failings of Kermit the Frog, it's a bit different because here we are. We have, again, to a certain extent, an honest to goodness Nazi. The idea of bringing it up puts us in a real kind of, uh, real pickle, a rock in a hard place kind of situation. If we just ignore it and we don't bring it up, we could be accused of being whitewashers, afraid of the truth, and generally just dopes. If we do bring it up, it might taint all the interesting and beneficial stuff that's coming up. All the stuff that will be said when I finally stop talking. I can imagine a particularly vivid straw man, or straw woman for that matter, that rather than listening this, will rip off his or her earbuds and flush their iPhone 17 or Samsung Galactus down his or her toilet to get rid of this awful, awful Nazi talk? I don't know the answer here. Frankly, it's not my job to do so, so back off. But if I focus on my favorite topic, me, myself and I... I have to admit that I have done some not-so-good things, some not-so-smart things in my life. I'm not talking about joining the Nazi party bad, but bad. Like one time, in a tightly constrained environment, specifically a packed back seat of a car, I had to, as the kids say, barf. But instead of throwing up out the window that was right beside me, I instead I instead I threw up right in the ear of my friend who was sitting in the middle. To protect his reputation, I'll just call him Mr. T. What an awful, disgusting thing to do to Mr. T. But you know what? Instead of justifiably beating me to death with a tire iron, he forgave me. Basically immediately. Really, as soon as 90% of the vomit was off of him.
0: So, what's the lesson here? Um, I was there when you uh, vomited into his ear. That was a uh, real classic. And uh, sad. But, you know what they say comedy is tragedy plus time. Anyway, we're we're definitely going to leave Heidegger and the Nazi stuff behind. We're just going to focus on some of his more well-known philosophical views. But uh, first, and as usual, a brief summary. So Martin Heidegger was a German philosopher who was born in 1889 and who died in 1976. He's probably best known for his 1927 philosophical work being and time, which is the work that we're going to draw from today. Heidegger is undoubtedly one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. And uh, what's more, very few rival him in the influence that he's had beyond the confines of philosophy. I know I might do this too often, but what
1: the hell? You have to dance with the one that brung you. So once again, I'm going to say things that are knowingly, absurdly wrong. It feels like quite a few philosophers like to really bag on uh, Descartes. That's not the absurdly wrong part. This is it. I feel like maybe maybe they're kind of jealous or envious. I, I forget which one's which. But regardless, if they're envious or jealous... It's of his kind of transcendent success, Cognito Ergo Sum, I Think Therefore I Am. It is an objectively massive philosophical hit. And it feels like the other philosophers with their hipster glasses and elaborate scarves maybe viewed him as a kind of a sellout, like the real ones are in some darkened basement doing some Radiohead Kid A type music crafted for only those that, you know, the ones that know they know. Instead, Descartes, he's out there doing some sort of version of Who Let the Dogs Out? If you check like the real philosophy billboard charts, I think Therefore I Am is number three all-time on the best-selling aphorism lists, only behind the all-time greats of The Unexamined Life and God is Dead by the Beatles and Stones, respectively. Heidegger's trio, Vorhandheit, Zuhandenheit and Entschlossenheit did didn't even chart and led him to be dropped by his record label. Or, perchance, there is something more substantial, less uh, completely fabricated out of whole cloth, that Heidegger questioned about Descartes' view.
0: Maybe? Hey, you know what? We should do a top 10 list of the philosophy billboard charts. That might, um, actually work. Let's remember that. But yeah to to get back to your to your question Heidegger who you're right didn't have the uh, the sexiest aphorisms ever did question Descartes' view okay so in order to understand what Heidegger is doing it's crucial that we know a little something about René Descartes cuz um Heidegger is actually rejecting or at least reprioritizing some of Descartes' most fundamental claims okay so what are those claims? Well, Descartes made this distinction that uh, essentially became the the characteristic thesis of modern philosophy. Basically, he argued that there are two kinds of substances in the world. And, uh, And a substance, by the way, is something like an entity that needs no other entity to exist. Okay, so on the one hand, there's what he called res extensa, which in Latin just means... um extended thing. And this is basically nature and, well, all the stuff of the um, the physical world. In other words, all the material objects out there whose essential properties are spatial and purely quantitative. And um, on the other hand, there's what Descartes called res cogitans, which means thinking thing. And this is basically mind's Mental entities that are defined by self-consciousness and thought and which are unextended. That's to say, they don't take up space. They're um, immaterial. So, for Descartes, you have two substances, one mental and the other physical. In other words, you have thinking things like us and extended things like uh, tables and chairs, and in fact, the entire fabric of space and time. Okay, now one way of speaking about the the relation between these two substances, thinking things and extended things, is to say that it's a relation between a subject and an object, where the subject represents to itself the objects outside of it. In other words, the relation is one of knowledge. And in fact, this dualistic view of human beings and the world out there one where we humans stand over and above impersonal, purely quantitative objects that we try to apprehend and measure, is really a conception of things from which modern science begins. It's to encounter the world, theoretically, as an isolated and disinterested spectator, as someone who's standing apart from and gazing out at a world stripped of all value. In other words, It's to see everything, again, as a pure object, which is to say something that can be apprehended objectively. Okay, now Heidegger doesn't agree with this, doesn't agree that this is our primary way of seeing or approaching the world. Our primary encounter with the world, our most um, primordial one, if you like, is not theoretical like this no at this everyday level we don't see objects or extended substances we don't see things in the way that a scientist does you know like a like a botanist does when they when they look at a plant rather and this is the really important point what we see and encounter are things that are both useful or practical and meaningful to us so you know when we're hammering say and this is heidegger's own example we don't see the hammer as a mere physical object made of wood and metal. Rather, we see it, if at all, as something functional that serves a purpose in our larger field of concern or or world of meaning. In fact, it's interesting. It's only when something goes wrong with our hammering, when the hammer um malfunctions, that we switch our viewpoint and begin to see it in the disinterested, Cartesian, or scientific sense as a mere physical object totally abstracted from any role it may have in our lives. So, what this shows is that experiencing or perceiving things as impersonal objects or as scientific items is actually derivative from our earlier primordial and practical dealings with our world of concern. In other words, unless things are first lit up in virtue of the role that they play in our world of meaning, nothing would ever stand out for us to look at in the impersonal, theoretical way. So, this was Descartes' mistake, says Heidegger. He got it backwards, so to speak. He took this detached spectator view of the object, which is actually parasitic on our practical dealings with the world. He took this view to be the primary one, and then he identified the so-called real object with some lump of extended matter or substance. And um, by the way, speaking of seeing something as as a lump of extended matter, according to Heidegger, not only did Descartes get the order wrong here, But Descartes' view, says Heidegger, actually severely dims down what we experience. That's to say, when we look at the world theoretically, we bring everything we contemplate or study down to a level of uniformity. We, um, we reduce it. And obviously, sometimes that's important. But we don't want to make that our dominant view. That's the worry. And again, that's because it would be to impoverish things, to only see one mode of being. Instead, Heidegger stresses how important it is to let things show themselves, and we do that fully when we, when we stay with things that appear in appearance and don't try to reduce them or see them as completely determined by their physicality. I mean, uh, to insist that a, that a jazz concert is really just, um, vibrations in the air or something like that. Well, that's pretty limiting to say the least. Why go to one then, right? Actually, you know what? Some of what I'm saying here takes me back to the, um, to the episode that we did on the director Terrence Malick and his great film Tree of Life. As we discussed there, Malick, who, who studied Heidegger does a pretty great job of um showing us how the world might show up to us if we loosened our stranglehold over it. He shows us how it is that by being patient and, and passive, and not forcing things through a, a theoretical lens and through human will, that the world can disclose itself to us in all sorts of amazing ways. I mean, just watch the film if you doubt what I'm saying. I mean, you see a tree or a leaf or the sunlight in a way that you had never seen before, as um, teeming with sacrality. It's just hard not to adopt an attitude of reverence towards what it is we're seeing when we watch that film. So what Malick does, much like Heidegger, is he gets us to see the richness and just the awesomeness of being in all its multiplicity. He gets us to realize just how much we conceal the the mysterious and unique presencing or revealing of things when we reduce and theorize and so don't allow entities to fully show themselves and to blossom in their own distinctive way. Anyway, but you know what? Let me go back to something I mentioned earlier because it's really important and I don't think I made it explicit. So I said that Descartes presented this um, dualistic view of the world, right? Where where we, our our egos, our minds, are are separate from, cut off from, the rest of the world. In effect, we're, we're spectators. And so our natural state is one of being in a spectatorial or disinterested stance towards objects in the world. Okay, well... Heidegger completely disagrees with this picture of things. We're not outside of the world. We're in it. Deep in it. We are being in the world, as Heidegger calls it. That's to say, we're engaged in a world of projects and of concern. We find ourselves immersed in a network of meaningful connections. We're we're linked to things. We're involved, absorbed entangled right from the start. So we're not alone, hovering high above the the goings-on of life. And so we're not at first intellectual spectators looking out over valueless objects out there. But this is important because what it means is that meaning is primary for us, not objects. Because we're all thrown into a world of concern, things just light up for us, They have significance for us. And that's because we're part of and engaged with this world that we find ourselves in. Ultimately, what Heidegger reminds us is that our true abode, our primordial home, is one of practical care and love, and so one of meaning, and not the world of res extensa.
1: As a truly dedicated passive receptacle for, for many things, entertaining, amusing, maybe sometimes even enlightening, the month of May is really lining up great if if I want to kind of shirk my own creative responsibilities. I know I talk about The Sopranos a lot, but like every other loudmouth, my actual favorite show is The Wire. And David Simon and George Pelicanos are back with what, almost amounts to kind of a spiritual sequel to The Wire, a Baltimore-set cop drama called We Own This City. On top of that, there's the comedy troupe, Kids in the Hall, absolute comedy heroes of my youth, and they have returned for the first time with new episodes of their show in over 20 years. Then, last night, as I'm about to fall asleep... I heard that the tragically departed Norm McDonald recorded an hour of new material before he fought cancer to a draw. Now, I just need a capper of 37 previously unreleased Nirvana songs and I'll be completely set. What do all these creatives that so that have, you know, that have so enraptured me, what do they all have in common? It's simple. They each decided to buck trends towards uniqueness and individuality. Instead, they pathologically conformed to whatever it took to be successful. They rounded off every edge, they removed everything that might rub someone the wrong way, and they created easily digestible problem for the broadest possible reach. Truly inspiring stuff. But by the way, I can see you looking at me over there. I feel like Heidegger might have such problem with such amazing, enriching conformity.
0: Ah, conformity. Yep. Yeah, we can't talk about Heidegger without saying something about that, right? I want to definitely check out that Norm Macdonald recording, though, when it comes out, by the way. Anyway, okay, so according to Heidegger, all of us tend to fall under the sway of what he calls, um, das Mann, or the they. Now, what does this mean? Well, it might help if we look more closely at that expression. So, Mann or man in German doesn't mean man like it does in English. Rather, it means something more like our use of one when we say something like, um, one shouldn't do those things. So, basically, it's an abstraction. In this sense, it's all of us. Basically, it's the ways of the, the faceless public. It's that impersonal entity that robs us of our freedom and individuality and drains away our responsibility. It's conformity of opinion, conformity of behavior, conformity all the way down. Now, Heidegger says that we're all under the dictatorship of the one, the they. And um, not surprisingly, he thinks that there's something inauthentic about this. Now, I should qualify this a little bit, though. So, some conformity and inauthenticity is pretty much unavoidable, says Heidegger. Actually, you know, the inauthentic existence is our default or primordial condition, he says. And, um, that's understandable, right? Because obviously we live in a social world with normalized practices and expectations. So, some conformity is expected and acceptable. But the problem is, is when we surrender to it completely and never take a stand for ourselves. When we disburden ourselves of every decision that we should make for ourselves and instead take up what others say and do. When that happens, we're not ourselves at all. No, we've become the one, the they. Okay, now, what's the way out of this for Heidegger? how do we live more authentically? Well, part of it involves actually seeing and facing up to the fact that the worlds that we live in are largely constructed by the opinions and interpretations of the they, and as such, realizing that those worlds don't have to be that way and could be altogether different. Now, the problem with such a recognition, though, is that it's really scary. actually scary or fearful is the wrong word here heidegger more aptly characterizes it as the initial experience of angst or anxiety okay so well what's angst well angst is the feeling of everything seeming to lose its importance or of everyday familiarity collapsing and when does this feeling or mood hit us Well, it happens when we get an intimation of a freedom from the world, from the they, that up until now dictated the limits of our vision. Now again, this isn't easy for most of us to deal with. Most of us want to avoid angst. We want to return to the familiar and the secure, to the dictatorship of the they. And that's what usually happens. But... Here's the thing. For some of us, angst is not something we want to hide from. And that's because we recognize it as an invitation and disclosure. As uncomfortable as it is, we know what it's trying to disclose to us. It's trying to tell us that a different world of meaning is open to us to forge. This is the reward for those who don't turn back when they've left their home an authentic existence and a coming into one's own most being. The
1: Wisdom of Podcast.
0: If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode.
1: Seneca!